tonight on the Marshall Pro Podcast, we're going to do part one of your Week in IndyCar listener q and A. I'm Marshall Pruitt. I do this on a weekly basis, uh, and I enjoy it. I'm a little bit cracked out right now. Granted, as cracked out as super hardcore antibiotics can make you, but they've always had a little bit of a funny effect on me, so I'll apologize up front if the show is more garbage than usual. Got a tiny amount of coffee here to try and keep me going. We will certainly have a part two, see if I can get most of the show done here in under or around an hour, and then we'll try and throw in some overtime questions. I'll also be taking a lot of sips of water because being super hydrated with uh, these particular antibiotics, I'm told, got to do it. So there you go. Maybe a couple of uh, short breaks here and there, but hopefully not too much of a raging dumpster fire slash unpolished turd of a show. Let's say super thank you, as always, to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA. A couple things to mention here before we get rolling. Obviously, mentioning that I was in the emergency room. A lot of you sent some really nice either notes or direct messages or just positive things. Super, super appreciative of those. And there's even some fun and interesting ones that kind of popped up out of, I guess, nowhere, not nowhere bad, but just like, oh, that was really cool. So, for example, uh, Tim Durham, super producer of the Hinch and Rossi podcast, Off Track with those two knuckleheads, he sent me a nice note, and it landed two seconds after 1996 Formula One world champion Damon Hill sent just a nice little note. And I'm going, you know, Tim, I mean, just trying to think of company here. Damon Hill, Thim, yeah, I think we're going Thim. So Damon Hill, whatever, that guy, tell you, what has he done in life? So anyways, just had to, to chuckle at the good fortune that I have for all of you and whether it's listeners or race car drivers or whomever, uh, crew members and, and old friends, just, again, sincere thank you. That was a bit of a blast. Uh, what else can I tell you? Hey, so last week, um, Elton Julian rang me, I think on a Monday or something like that, and said, hey, not going to announce it, but we're going to sell our car. And just as a general note, end up talking to any team owners, whatever you get a feel, any of them are looking for a car. Let me know. Cause we haven't really started the search, but, uh, if you hear about it, let me know. Said no, not a problem within two minutes. I'm on the phone with Michael Shank about something totally different and topic of needing a car came up and it's just this total like, well, Hey, you and and him and the car, then you could talk. And then it's so it's hilarious. And just got a a text back from Elton. I don't know, whatever it was half hour later, like, thanks. And so there you go. Like just coincidence. So it was fun to see that happen. And uh, they just got all the, uh, the business stuff sorted out, I guess. So uh, both of them said it was cool to do the little story we did today. Sad announcing that dragon speed, will not be our, our among our one or two super underdogs to root for going forward. But uh, Elton's, Elton's a real guy. I mean, the money side's been hard in particular this year, but 
if something cool develops in IndyCar, we get a third manufacturer, we get something that you go, all right, uh, we got to get back. He's the type of guy who can make that happen. And so going to miss him, but also appreciative of how reactive the guy can be when he wants to make something happen. So I thought that's, that's pretty darn cool. Uh, let's see, what else can I mention quickly? Oh, hey, there were some rumors on the internets today that uh, our man, our fine young man from Spain, Alex Palou, might be headed to replace Felix Rosenquist in the number 10 Chip Ganassi entry. Uh, can tell you that that's been brewing as an option for a little while. Uh, I can't tell you exactly how long because I don't know the moment or second that that door opened up, but it feels like it's been a week to 10 days, maybe something like that. Uh, here's the only thing to keep in mind. Do I think Alex would be amazing in that car? I do. I think he has great potential and in a highly structured team with the expertise of a Dario Franchitti and Chris Simmons and uh, Julian Robertson and all up and down the line. I think that kid would, I wouldn't say he'd be a super scary weapon in year two, uh, his first year with the team, second year in IndyCar. But I do think that, boy, you want to talk about developing, building and all that promise, I think there could be something magical there. Here's the one problem. And if the problem can be solved, I think we're talking about Alex Pelot being confirmed. It is this. Everything we have heard, I've mentioned some of this on the show. I've written it as well. Everything we have heard for a little while now says that the number 10 car, in terms of sponsorship, is not necessarily what it was when Felix entered that seat, meaning we're going to pay you to drive it. Everything that I've heard from those who might have an interest in being in that car, and I haven't spoken to Alex, so this, you know, I'm not talking about his business, but spoken with others who've said they certainly have inquired and they've all said, yeah, that's a, <laughs> a no, I'm not going to be paid to drive and B it's a serious number needed to be in that car. So we know for sure that Mr. Go Kazumichi Go co-entrant on Alex's number 55 Dale coin racing Honda is the financial opportunity maker that brought Alex to IndyCar with Dale. We are very thankful that, what is it, guaranteed rate, mortgage sponsor came on somewhere around middle of the season to help with budget there. But just going to share this. To be in that car from everything that we've heard, a significant sponsorship delivery will be required. Only thing we have heard on Alex's side in terms of returning to Dale Coin Racing has been either Mr. Go isn't probably too sure he wants to spend that same amount of money to keep the party going and or, all right, maybe there's something there, but not really hardcore secure finances to put behind Alex at Coin. So if we are 
not entirely sure there's enough budget to return with Dale Coyne, who is known to subsidize half or so uh, of his entries. I'm not sure how we make the math work on Alex, and we would assume Mr. Go, uh, possibly going to Chip Ganassi Racing to be in the 10 car, considering that the price tag for that could be double what they are facing this year. So if there are questions about Alex returning and more about Mr. Go and the funding there to stay with the current team, how likely is it we would see him going to the championship winning team in a car that costs considerably more? So that's the question. Is he deserving of that opportunity? I'd say without question. I can name three or four drivers that I would say they do as well. But this isn't a hiring situation. So that's where if the money can be found, then I think we might have something and something pretty darn cool for Alex. But it's sadly, it's not about talent. Talent's a big important thing, but talent isn't going to pay the bills. So just keep that little bit in mind. Uh, another little funny note to mention here before we get to your questions, just catching up on a, on some miscellaneous things that have come in. So was uh, talking with Scott McLaughlin, and I loved the fact that way under the radar, while doing a great job of creating questions and uh, maybe muddying the, the waters a little bit as to whether he would be staying in supercars or coming over here. Well, he did come over here for the St. Petersburg race. He also moved his entire house in that trip as well. <laughs> so even got the dog over here, right? So you want to talk about super efficiency ninja assassin Scott McLaughlin, uh, all the, well, you know, I'm, I'll be in supercars until I'm told otherwise, and I don't know, and we'll see, and, blah, 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 and I'm going back after the race. I don't know. Maybe he forgot his toothbrush. That's why he's going back. But, yeah, he uh, not only is he a good poker player, but I love the fact that between closing out the Australian supercar season, competing in the Bathurst 1000, and then flying to America to make his IndyCar debut a few days later, also had the entire house packed up and moved with him to move into a new home uh, near the Penske shop. So, man, I'm telling you, uh, there's almost nothing good old Scotty McLaughlin cannot do. Uh, thanks again for all the really kind things you've uh, sent my way. And uh, let's get rolling here with your questions. You know, a little bit of music bed Usually uh, of late, I've just been rolling right into your questions. But hey, we just finished the season finale. There's a lot of little extras in here. So uh, we're going to get rolling. Uh, my wife, by the way, is finishing up Ford versus Ferrari while having dinner. So how cool is she? Uh, I'm going to take a quick sip here, then we're going to get rolling. Our man Jamie Carr opens us with Paul Tracy said, The St. Pete race was more bizarre than the Tiger King. He says, uh, I think, quote, if Florida man was an IndyCar race is a better metaphor. What do you think? I absolutely do, Jamie. Uh, uh, as I wrote in my little uh, 
post-race brain dump thing on race that went up this afternoon. This was the face palm Grand Prix. Uh, absolutely just one after another after another. Some of them were great where granted it some of a lot of them were misfortune and miscues but some of them it was like oh my god what was that whoa how's a you know how did you do that how did you survive that pass attempt and whatnot it was crazy in all the right ways and wrong ways so uh if florida man was an indycar race i love that one too jamie and uh thanks to your note here uh, best of my wife and myself and yes i'm indeed following doctor's orders I know that my wife uh, did not go to university to become a doctor, but I can tell you that uh, doctor's orders usually start with her, and then if they're one of those, you know, uh, like degree doctors that you go and visit, I listen to them as well. But uh, I got a doctor at home who takes great care of me and uh, keeps me in line as well. J.J. Gertler, how you doing, buddy? He says, no questions this week. Just says, after race, that should be shown, sped up with Benny Hill music. Oh, boy. Also mentions just wishes uh, for healing for you and yours. Thanks, man. Uh, Tony Chef 20. What the heck was that race? What do you think the reasoning for all the mental mistakes we saw? What do you think they were? What's behind it? Especially under yellow flag circumstances. (sighs) First thing that comes to mind, Tony, in some of these instances, it might be a case of aligning with some of the uh who needs what and and why things that i wrote about leading into the race there were pretty decent number of people needing to showcase something alexander rossi just not being able to live with himself without getting a win well he's pushing like mad and there you go uh dj willie p uh i mean that was just a straight up mistake of his but i think that when he had the uh, gearbox issue leading into i forget what turn number that was at the end of the back long straight um i think that just unsettled his rhythm his mental rhythm not so much the physical rhythm and i think from there that sent him spiraling downwards um so there was that hinch as well Uh, You know, I have to imagine he'll be fine for next year, but this is just one of those things where, boy, a podium, uh, not only does it erase any question, but in theory, it just only helps uh, serve the point that he should be a full-timer there. Uh, Just on and on and on. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is a thing. Probably isn't. But it's a little bit strange to go almost a month. Was it three weeks? A little over three weeks between the penultimate rounds and the season finale uh shortish weekend as well and then it's a street course with narrowish uh gaps making a circuit so therefore you for the first time this year outside of an oval you don't have runoff area really or you're gonna crash you're gonna it just seemed like the mental adjustment too hey, maybe we can't go animal-animal style, double-double style here as we just did at the IMS road course where, you know, you can miss an apex and drive for about a half hour on all the runoff before you get back to the track if you want to. 
I think just a lot of folks had a lot of pressure on themselves, Tony. A lot of folks wanted to prove something. And also the, oh, this track makes you not play anymore if you don't do it good. <laughs> if, if you miss that apex, you bounce over that curb, you take too much of this, of that. I mean, people spinning all over the place, nosing into the tires, going down the one runoff into the back straight. I think they named the uh, Max Chilton Memorial runoff after he went down there what? I don't even know how many times, but just cross the board. Joseph Newgarden, Scott Dixon, and I'm trying to think of a handful of others we could say got through the race weekend from opening practice to the very end without something silly happening. I don't know if we can say that for 15 plus of the 24 in the race. So, yeah. Um, but I'm also going to say Florida man too. Definitely at fault. Uh, Robbie Bergeron. Hey, Marshall, do you think swapping Laguna Seca and St. Pete next year would lead to a similarly wild finale in 2021? Running a street circuit certainly means more chances for drama with the walls being so close. I am with you 1,000% Robbie Bergeron. So Laguna Seca, it's one of my two home tracks. I love it, love it, love it, love it. It's the first real first road course I ever remember attending when I was like five or six. It's buried so deeply in my heart. And the racing, more often than not in the modern era, uh, is kind of hot trash. So, yeah. Uh, I would absolutely vote for the high-stakes street course season opener, season closer, if they need to open it and close it with St. Pete. Uh, leave Laguna Seca in there. I don't care. Uh, I thought St. Pete was a stunner in terms of the track itself being one of the biggest participants in the race. It brought so much drama, so much crazy stuff because everyone's going mental, trying to close the year on a high. And because of that crazy exertion and abandoning of sense, the track rewarded us. Didn't reward a lot of those people, but it rewarded fans with something where you go, holy poop, right? I mean, I can't tell you if it was 40% through the race or 50 or 60, whatever it was exactly, but it looked like Joseph Newgarden was going to finish fifth or sixth. Dixon was going to be eighth or ninth. Meh, nothing, you know, all right. Uh, it's not going to be too exciting. The first, like, 30-ish percent of the race was boring as hell. I was genuinely afraid that the season closer was going to be a snoozer. And then things started changing. And then all of a sudden, the all right, well, now they've moved up. And, you know, Joseph's gaining a little bit of ground, but Dixon is too. So he's staying close. But what's going on here? And could that go sideways? And then things just kept going and going and going with yellow after yellow and brain fade after brain fade. I'm with you, Robbie. If we're talking how to do this right, well, Take us to a track where it's not so processional. As best as I can remember, Laguna Seca 2019 and some of the final champ car races in the 2000s. Yeah, it wasn't 
it wasn't super compelling. So I bet you, uh, you probably get a lot of pushback from teams and drivers who don't want to have a lot of wreckage to close the season. But if we're talking fans and fan first, yeah, that was pretty darn awesome. Lake Effect Racing says, MP, this might be more of a statement than a question, but Scott Dixon's nickname should be changed to G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. Not only does he beat the best, but he is extremely humble. I can't argue with you for talking the modern era. It's between Dario and Dixon for sure. And if we're talking those who are still competing, it's Scott Dixon and there's not even a number two that's close to him. So, yeah. Uh, if one single thing comes out of Dixie's sixth championship, I hope it is, and it seems like I'm seeing it and feeling it a little bit more than after his fifth or fourth or whatever, is an appreciation for him and what he has achieved. Maybe it's just the number six. Maybe that stands out more than five. I don't know. But there just seems to be a little bit more recognition that, yeah, you can't make an argument that's based in sanity or truth that this guy is not one of the true all-time greats. Uh, You throw him up there with Mario and AJ and a handful of others, walk back and further back throughout history, and, you know, there's... If you come up with your top 15 IndyCar drivers of all time, maybe 20, not only is he in the top 10... He's very likely in the top five. And I don't think a lot of old timers who really pay attention and aren't just stuck in the, ah, the old guys in black and white were the best ever. Honest appraisal, I think most would easily put Scott in the top five. Is he fifth? Is he first? Is he third? Again, that's more of an individual thing. I'd have a hard time putting Scott ahead of A.J. Foyt. If he goes and gets number seven, gets number eight, well, maybe the conversation changes a bit. But I don't know if any of that matters, right? It's the LeBron, Michael Jordan, Bill Russell argument. You go, (laughs) these are all the greatest of their eras. And which one would be best in the other's era? And uh, How about we just recognize that Scott Dixon, we're watching a true living legend ply his trade. And that's, it's stupid. At 40 years old, 40, 41, he just won his sixth championship. What? It just doesn't even make sense. Uh, Let's see, Ryan Terpstra. uh, MP, please rank the epic fails from Sunday. Will Power, Alexander Rossi, James Hinchcliffe, Colton Herta, Connor Daly says for hashtag me personally, that daily mistake was almost a million dollar mistake, but lucky for him that Sato happened to Marco referring to the leader circle. I mentioned guys that it was really kind of fun, uh, not rewarding because you know, who cares? But, uh, I think I was the first person to really pick up on the leader circle drama that was building. 
and started writing about it and then wrote about it some more and kept you guys updated and such. And it was fun to see granted. They never give credit for this stuff. Of course, they just read what they read and go, but uh, it was fun to see the NBC broadcast team pick up on the leader circle and insert what had been just kind of something we enjoy in online reading and, and commenting and such. It's fun to see the NBC broadcast team uh, pick up on that and try and keep that stuff going. Granted, I don't think all of them actually read all the way through a lot of what I wrote because they seemed to not fully grasp what was going on, but at least they knew it was a thing, and they tried to keep folks updated. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Yeah, so Connor came close to things going bad. Had Marco not had Sato happen to him, that might have been very costly. So that's a, that's a great point. Uh, epic fails. Wouldn't say Herta, right? I mean, that kid's golden. Um, third in the championship. Just one. It was one of three total bad races that he had out of 14. That's pretty phenomenal. It's why he's third in the championship. Uh, power. I, I got to tell you, Ryan, I would really love to give you a single one. But I'm struggling. I mean, Herda, no, and Daly, no. Power, Rossi, and Hinch all hit me equally. Like, each one is that bad. But in different ways, none of them jumps out as one that's worse than the other. Hinch, as I mentioned, you you hear things might be positive for him next year, coming back full-time. That'd be great, obviously. Gainbridge folks had a kind of sort of okay day in the sun for the first time really this year running up front podium contention car being seen on tv a lot for all the right reasons and a shitty result and a you know a silly mistake can't get mad at hinch over that it was a fluke not some gross demonstration of lack of talent or whatever else. It was just a dumb mistake like Connor's crash, right? I mean, we know how good he is. Um, but boy, uh, James is trying to build, rebuild his reputation in the paddock. And I, I can tell you that there are still enough doubters in that paddock that that kind of outcome in the footage of him running down the front straight with the, uh, front wings trailing beneath the car and whatever and clear damage had happened. I can guarantee you that there were a number of folks sitting in positions of power uh, on their timing stands who just kind of nodded like, yep, that's not a surprise, which I think is sad. And I don't think that's deserved, but regardless, uh, he's been trying to shake some of that sting that stench from how things went down with Aero McLaren SP last year and boy uh, minus that mistake coming home on the podium or there thereabouts third fourth whatever it would have been I just really think that would have uh, I think that would have done him a world of good reputationally so yeah uh, Rossi I just fear for him <laughs> and his happiness in the off season because this was everything he needed to pull the thorn from his paw that had been there for the majority of the season. 
I know he's had a great run of races very recently, but this winning form, uh, boy, that's just who he is. He's one of those guys who is not wired to happily finish second or what anything other than first. That's part of what makes him so amazing. Having this win in his hand and making a mistake and losing it, throwing it away. That's part of the, that's not part of the Rossi story, right? That's not who he is. That's why it was such a shock. Like, whoa, (laughs) Rossi parked with the car in a crumpled mess and he's by himself and it was him, not someone shunting him, but him. Like, that's just not him. Plus, while leading and seemingly controlling the race, beating Herta and see me, which we don't haven't seen a ton of lately. Like, it was just all these things where you go, whoa, this is going to mean a ton to close the year on a high and really be in the right headspace for next year. I'm not saying he won't be in the right headspace. I'm just saying this is a, a punishing end to a season and despite so many negative things happening this year, I think the vast majority were not of his making. So to close the year on such a high turned into such a low, and it was all him causing that, uh, I don't know if that's fam- super familiar territory for him. He's going to grow from it, but yeah, I, I, I felt bad for him. I really did. Uh, power. A lot of the similar comments here, Ryan. Uh, he and I texted, what, Saturday night, I think, after he got his umpteenth poll. And he's told me the same on the phone many times lately, uh, but also just reaffirmed by text. He's driving than he better than he ever has. He's at his absolute best. And I wouldn't disagree uh, if we're talking about the you know, latter stages of the season. Um, he's really just found an extra gear and there's a weird, there's a weird little haywire thing. There's a weird little short circuit that will has had throughout his entire IndyCar career where it seems like when things are going so well for him, that's when you kind of curl up in defensive mode and look over the top of your hands to see, oh, is it going to end up okay? Oh, man. We're in the wall. Oh, DJ Willie P. What happened, dude? And he's a friend of mine, so I'm trying to separate friend from being reporter, monkey, analyst whatever guy separating the human side just the athletic side there is just this little short circuit thing that has followed him for so long and this was not going to be a championship year for him that was set out pretty early but the guy should retire a four-time champion maybe five, but there have been so many of these little instances. Again, there's also other ones where the car broke or this, you know, there've been other times out of his hands, but 
I'm not able to cite specific races that jump out. Um, I mean, what Fontana comes to mind. I mean, I should be able to recall five or 10 of these, but I just, there's just this feeling that more often than it should, when he is doing well, kicking ass in control, there's some little misjudgment somewhere. Boom in the wall day done. And I'd say more than any of the ones you've mentioned here, Ryan, to close on this topic, our boy power takes these things hard. They have a significant emotional, spiritual effect on him. He's not the, uh, just shake it off and off you go. And short term memory. I, I forgot it ever happened. These things linger. And so, as he's gotten older, he has learned more about how to shed these things. But, yeah. Uh, the only only item that jumped out that made me feel semi-okay for Will by the end of the race is the fact that Alexander Rossi did the same thing in the same corner and Connor Daly did the same thing at the same corner, so he wasn't alone. But that that's a really weird way to find a positive from all this. So, yeah. Uh, oh, boy. Heartstring stuff. All right. Kevin Pinkston. Uh, Lori Carter and Northern Penguin 01. Uh, we got questions about Jam Tholomew Hinchcliffe. Congratulations to Scott Dixon for another IndyCar championship, says Kev. Although I hereby give James Hinchcliffe the Golden Bowling Ball Award for the 2020 season. Really? Wow. Okay. This was a particularly hard choice, as I haven't seen this many drivers running into walls and each other since I last saw a demolition derby. Nevertheless, James, you came through in shining glory. It's bad enough for you to spin out on your own under caution, but then to spear another car trying to get out of the mess you put yourself in, how do you find the talent for this accomplishment? It's a little hardcore, Kev, and I think some of it's tongue-in-cheek, but again, it's a mistake, right? I mean, we see things that are just sheer ineptitude, and you go, that was never going to work. Why did you try? That was so stupid. You ruined your day and the other guys or whomever. This was, again, a mistake compounded by another mistake. I wouldn't assign gross lack of skill or talent or anything here um you know pulling out in front of jack harvey jack obviously has had a lot of races this year that have been ruined for a lot of reasons that weren't of his own making uh andretti teammate ish all the things that we know made this bad but you know this is not a typical hinch thing right so, might be a little harsh, my friend. Um, Lori, thanks for sending this in. Says, hi, MP. Hope you're feeling better. Thank you. It's going to be, by the way, it's going to be a couple weeks, but uh, I'm hopped up on coffee. So, uh, trying to replicate the unencumbered self. She says, I love Hinch, but why wasn't he penalized for running into Harvey when he tried to get back on track after he spun and did I leave this open because I wanted to read it and make sure? So, Laurie, he was. Uh, car number 26, penalty, avoidable contact on lap 84. He was awarded a brand new 
drive-through penalty. So Justice Takuma Sato, as some thought he was not penalized for hitting, was it Marco? Uh, I think Mark, either him or Oliver. Um, he also penalized for avoidable contact and was ordered to restart at the back of the field on lap 79. So seeing how, let's see, Marco was knocked out of the race on lap 74. Uh, yeah, that must've been the, uh, the Marco punch. So yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, where did he end up finishing? Um, uh, here, uh, sorry, y'all. Like I said, this is probably going to be more garbage than usual. So I apologize. Takuma finished 10th. Well, there you go. Um, I, if they had done something where he finished way super crazy down the finishing order, um, 20th or who knows. And I don't have the points table in front of me. It's possible. He could have lost seventh place, which he held kind of sort of forever. Um, Pagano finished what? Nine points behind him. Eighth overall in the standings. If Takuma had gotten some sort of crazy penalty and his finishing position was ruined, Lori, uh, there's a possibility he could have fallen back one spot in the championship but it wouldn't have really done much of anything. Uh, so that's not making an excuse for Takuma. Uh, as I wrote today, it was like he had his own throwback weekend, just unfortunately a throwback to the days when he kind of hit everything but the pace car. Um, frustrating, though, to see <laughs> you can't, oh, I should say you can't, we don't hand out penalties based on the negative effects of those who are influenced. If you knock a person out of the race, you get penalized for knocking, you know, you get penalized for what you did, but the person's knocked out of the race. The fact that the person also was in a really good position to earn a million dollar leader circle contract, um, that can't really factor in or doesn't. Um, I know someone responded to uh, my final leader circle story and said it was asinine of me to blame Takuma for Marco losing the leader circle right back at you. It's asinine to have read that story and draw that conclusion that that's what I said. Uh, but there is no question that despite everything that happened before St. Pete, despite everything, Marco Andretti was in a position to finish in front of Sebastian Bourdais, and as we found out with Cole, uh, Connor Daly's crash, finish well ahead of Connor Daly. And again, I don't care all the other bad races they had earlier this year, who was or wasn't at fault. The simple fact was at the final race where there were three drivers fighting for leader circle to hold on to their advantageous positions or turn their disadvantage into an advantage. Marco was winning that three driver war and through the unnecessary hit from behind something he wasn't involved in, uh, from another driver, he went from being in that prime spot to get that million to not getting that million. So blaming Sato. No, uh, I'm not blaming anybody, 
But there is a truth that it would be dumb to ignore that without that hit, uh, Connor Daly might be, well, it's not just Connor, frankly, it was Ed Carpenter's really bad showings on the ovals that certainly contributed to the number 20 car being at or near the bottom of the leader circle list. So there's a lot going on, but again, subtract that hit. We're writing a very different leader circle story um, in total isolation from whatever happened earlier in the year. So there you go. Uh, Let's see. Where can I find a next question to ax you? Uh, Northern Penguin 01. Hey, Marshall, during the broadcast, it was mentioned by a pit reporter. Hinch had mentioned that his 2021 plans were almost set and just had to be signed, and that his performance at St. Pete wouldn't affect his ride for 2021. By the wording, it sounded like the ride was in Andretti. Do you have any information or insights to bestow on us about this? Heard the same thing. Um, There, yeah. uh, Heard the same thing. Hope, I mean, again, as I've mentioned, I hope he's there. It'd be awesome. A hinch full-time in the series only makes the series better. And so definitely hoping that that is the case. Uh, the stuff I mentioned earlier about him finishing, answering some questions, silencing some voices, even if he's already signed the contract. You know, keep in mind, confidence is key. Lack of confidence in Zach Veach, despite him having a valid and executed contract, was the thing that took him out of that seat. So, (laughs) just saying, uh, the confidence and believing you're the guy and can get the job done, uh, I tell you, the minute that's lost, teams, uh, especially the most competitive teams, start looking for ways, even if it's not easy by contract, even if the driver says, hell no, I'm not stepping out. You don't want to give that team a reason to start looking for creative ways to pluck you out of that car and replace you. So kind of where the comments about Hinch getting home, good finish, silencing the doubters, given the number 26 car, it's really best day in a super long time. Uh, Yeah. So those comments as well weren't specifically about him hopefully going back to Andretti Autosport full-time next year. And who knows, would that be one year, two, one with an option? I don't know. It's more the down the line a little bit. Uh, What's the rest of the paddock thinking? So anyways, I don't know if any of that means anything, but... It fell out of my face, and there you go. Uh, Let's see. Thomas Gross. Fair to say this was race control's worst weekend so far. Qualifying was a disaster. No penalties for Sato. He did have the penalties I mentioned. No penalty for Hinch. He did get a penalty. Uh, What was going on? I'm sure Kyle Novak will explain why they did everything correctly, but I think it's okay to call it a complete disaster from an officiating standpoint. Um can't tell you if it was the worst because i wasn't there i can only observe what i observed from the outside and it was not something that gave the appearance of being the best that's kind of one of the many reasons why i dubbed it the facepalm grand prix thomas so yeah 
it looked like bluntly they didn't have their shit in order uh on multiple occasions and i know this is a it's a trite thing to say so it's not like because it happens to me or miller or other journalists that it should happen to them but every single day when i file a story about something there is someone if not multiple people granted there'll be some people that say very nice things there'll also be some folks who say some very negative or nasty things some personal things uh belittling me as a man as a this as a writer as a whatever the quality of the thing the angle of the thing just the right it's normal so pretty much every day and so it's the same for athletes right uh every major athlete gets the you know love and hate on a daily basis through social media through wherever just from the fans in the stands we do our best to love our friends in race control and give them a thumbs up at all time and we can never know everything that they go through but just like when if you're watching a football game and there is a penalty and they want to go and review or whatever the scenario is they want to go and watch instant replay and it takes too long and takes even more time and takes even more time and the whole crowd is booing and the head coaches are losing their minds because it feels as if the referees are either incompetent don't know how to do their jobs are just having an epically bad day while the outcome of their actions and the hope excellence that is expected in their roles seems to be missing can therefore directly influence the quality of the day and performance of whichever teams or players like these things are interrelated and so you love to give them a pass as often as you can but i mean a lot of us get instant feedback and a lot of it's super negative and i'd love to say boy it sure looked like they were on top of the ball uh with the amount of contact that took place throughout the race uh the fact that there were only three penalties uh there were the two aforementioned ones for sato and hinch and then a blocking penalty for jack harvey like and yet it seemed like we were dealing with the most egregious blocking in humanity's history on saturday and qualifying um I don't know. This is this appeared to be a scenario, Thomas, where under previous ownership, there might have been some curt words, but might not have gone too far. I don't know how much Roger Penske saw all of it as it happened live, but this just strikes me as something where, oh, I would fear to be in a Monday morning debrief with rp about how the event went from a administration standpoint because yeah so all i can do is share what it looked like from the outside acknowledging that things are not always what they appear to be from the outside but if you are seeing it and thinking it and saying it and 
Many others have, and I've heard more, definitely a lot more from folks who were on pit lane participating in the race and or in the cars driving in the race. If the general impression was that this was a shit show, even if behind the scenes maybe it really wasn't, public impression tends to win the day. So uh, I hope whatever it is or the things were, just like the numerous crashes and untidiness that we saw during 100 laps on track, um, it seemed to just be a whole weekend where untidiness was maybe the standard. Uh, let's go to Max Leitcha. Leitcha? I'm killing your last name, brother. I'm sure that I am, and I apologize for that. Uh, maybe next time you send something in, give me a little explanation, a little learner's guide on how to not mangle your last name. You ask, have you heard any any IndyCar teams asking about Williams Formula One driver George Russell? He's a young star, but he might be out of a ride next year. I think he'd be a great pickup for an IndyCar team, even if it's only for a brief Juan Montoya-style loan. Heard anything serious? No. Uh, there's always a handful of IndyCar team owners, Max, who covet Formula One drivers, Formula One grade drivers, uh, peak F2, GP2, F3000 drivers, as they should. But it's more often a coveting coveting someone from the big, well-known, famous series, and there are a lot of assumptions that they are just the bee's knees. I think George Russell is greatly talented, and I would love to see the kid here. Do I think there's a team that is ready to put him in a car and pay him to drive? I am unaware of that. Could that change? Possibly. Does just about every team, so we've already spoken about the number 10 car, Ganassi. Um, We hope the 26 car is going to be filled, and that's all going to be taken care of there. Does that close any opportunities for someone to join Andretti? Very possibly. Um, Dale Coyne, could there be one or two seats available there? Um, you know, we're, and those are seats again, all, everything I've mentioned are ones where we know some money is going to need to change hands in order to drive. Well, uh, I've never heard a thing about George bringing money. Um, therefore hard to say exactly whether, there would be an invitation to drive for them. So, yeah. Uh, Another quick thing, just to cover off, because I realize not everybody who's listening is a veteran IndyCar fan and knows all this stuff, so it might be a bit repetitive for some of you who do. You got the same thing of, A, he's never driven on an oval ever. I know we only have three of them next year, so it's a tiny portion of, of the championship and potential points, but they're really important. No, four ovals, four ovals. I'm sorry. I think we, what, go to three ovals total, but I think there's, what, four oval of races. Sorry, y'all. It still counts. It still matters in a 17-race season. That's four races, one of them being the Indy 500. So complete education would have to start there. To my knowledge, since we're not going back to Circuit of the Americas, He has been to zero of the tracks that I can think of. I don't know if he snuck over here and did a race and something that I'm forgetting in a junior formula, but 
brand new to everything, never done ovals, doesn't bring any money. Go team. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we got a kid named Oliver Askew who's like an Indy Lights champion and showed that he was having a knockoff of more than a month of rust of not driving a car and sure seemed to be going pretty darn quickly last weekend until some things went wrong, but he still showed himself pretty darn good and he knows ovals and he's really good on ovals and uh, uh, he's here and he has experience and he's been to all the tracks. So just using my inside voice here uh, a little bit, Max, I uh, would love to see George Russell, but I can't think of a single thing on the planet Earth that would lead me to believe he would be a better choice than Oliver Askew. And, I mean, heck, why? while we're at it, let's go with Felipe Nazar, right? He's been to a good number of the tracks in IMSA now, but that guy's a rocket, wants to be here, ex-Formula 1 driver. Um, he's about it, about it, about it. Uh, so... I think George might be in a tough position. And here's the last thing. It's my ignorance if he has said so, but I don't recall him like saying, yeah, IndyCar, let's go. That's me. I'm all about it. So, yeah. He had one other thing. He said, uh, what do you make of Roger Penske's recent comments about Indy Lights? It seemed very out of character for him to be so upset over some social media posts and an alleged lack of gratitude. Is there something else going on here behind the scenes? So, as I probably don't mention as often as i should max i don't see everything that everyone says in every article so i don't really know what you're referring to uh i didn't see whatever it is roger might have said but uh i'm assuming maybe it was about not having the freedom 100 and it's never going to stop being among the stupidest decisions i've ever seen related to indie lights Um, I haven't spoken with him to find out how they got to that decision, but it's, I've tried to run all the potential answers through my mind and I can't think of a single one where I'd go, okay, no, I understand. No, that makes sense. No, I can't think of any. Imagine telling IndyCar teams, Hey, we're taking the Indy 500 off the schedule. What? Well, Imagine telling that to Indy Lights teams. I realize the Freedom 100 is just, it's a niche type thing, right? It's not some giant race broadcast live on NBC. And again, we know all that. But for the families that are spending their own money for their sons and daughters to be there, for the sponsors that they found to be there, taking the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Freedom 100 Oval Race as part of the lead-up to the Indianapolis 500, taking that off the Indy Lights schedule and thinking that was somehow going to make it easier for teams to sign kids, sign sponsors, make the series healthier? It's idiotic absolutely idiotic and i say that as a guy who's not just trying to throw a hot take out there or what none of that as many of you likely know 
I have spent, did spend the majority of my career in junior open wheel racing, have stayed connected to it super heavily the whole time, uh, worked every position <laughs> from mechanic to engineer to team manager to blah, 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 uh, bottom of the road to Indy, top of the road to Indy, side of the road to Indy, all these things. Uh, so I'm not just flapping my mouth trying to be analyst guy, podcast dude. I'm saying this is someone who just wants to see the thing thrive and wonders how you take that event, which also... As some of you know who've watched it, it's the best race at Indianapolis Motor Speedway every year. Not just during the Indy 500 weekend. Of all events, there's not one that matches the Freedom 100, especially the finish. So to take that, the best race you have every year off the schedule, it's mind-blowing. So... Yeah, the thing that entices parents and sponsors. I realize they'll be there for the Indianapolis Grand Prix road course weekend, and that's kind of sort of cool and whatever. It's nothing like Carb Day. It's nothing like having fans out seeing and feeling the pageantry in the provenance of the Indy 500 getting warmed up for its big day. 48 hours after the Freedom 100 with a decent size crowd there. It, there's just a real buzz. You feel it. It's electric. Just last quick thing here. Sorry, a little bit of a rant, but that's me. Whatever. Um, have you seen the Victory Lane photos of the Freedom 100 winners? It isn't. It was really cool you know yeah i won this race yay if you match the f- winning photo of the kid climbing out of the car in victory lane for the freedom 100 and get their reaction and hold it up next to whomever wins the indy 500 two days later in their reaction either you won't be able to tell the difference because they're both as equally as mental and screaming and crying and losing their minds, you might in some see more emotion out of the kid winning the Freedom 100. Look, 99% of everything I have said, we have said, everybody has said about what has taken place since RP and company bought the Indy Annapolis Motor Speedway and IndyCar has been super positive. They are crazy thin-skinned. They cannot stand criticism. They take it as a personal attack. Uh, Cool. This is a big screw-up. This is the one big screw-up I've seen that they've done, and if they don't like it, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you can yell at the people who are saying that you can call me and yell at me for what I have said here or what I have written on social media. Please do. I truly don't give a shit. This is reality. This is why you have seen such a strong negative response from people because it feels like 
there was not a proper understanding of what this event means to the top of the road to Indy ladder, to the families, to the sponsors, to the fans. This was a mistake. Period. Jim Johnstone says, true or false, someone installed a giant gravity vortex and used that to ensure the Andretti cars would be thrown into walls, marbles, runoff zones, and tire barriers during the race. You did see them. You did see that flying overhead. I thought I was the only one, Jim. Thanks for spotting that, buddy. Okay. Cody DW12. Hi, Marshall. Hope you've been recovering and treatment uh, for you and your wife is going well. Thank you, man. Uh, Marco Andretti's 98 car was the odd one out and lost the lead to circles money. Is there a concern for Marco to stay in the seat or focus more on the ownership aspect going forward? Others in this community have expressed interest in seeing someone such as ask you in it. Mike Markham has also mentioned how will missing out on a leader circle contract affect 98 car with Marco being in a contract year. Is there any real chance he won't be back at Andretti next season? If I was a smarter monkey, I would have had the sitting here ready to use, but I'm not. So I didn't, uh, let me go back and find this because I just thought it was a, uh, bit of a, a perfect, bit of a perfect response maybe. And I, I guess it's more, uh, from the man himself. So let me find this from our man, Marco Andretti. I drove my absolutely heart out. We were in a position and would have maybe gained more positions. We were in the money, so to say, referring to the leader circle. I left room to the apex and I think I just got tagged. We got a flat. Then it was all down from there. We were so much faster. I just can't believe we're in this position. I've never seen a season like we've had this year with the misfortunes. And here's the part that uh, is important to close the questions. Some of it is luck and some of it is not. We need to work to fix things that are not. The prep for 2021 starts now. Uh, those are the words of a guy who is prepping for 2021. So, yeah. And also, as I mentioned in my little post-event brain dump, like I know that more and more people seem to be calling for Marco to step aside or do other things. Like That's just not how you end it, right? Uh that's not how the movie goes where you just have the worst season of your career and you quit. I mean, that movie's like <laughs> three minutes long. That's not how the story goes. And Marco was proud enough to not want to do that. And also just on a human being level, Cody and Mike and anyone else who holds that opinion, Marco, even though I've told you, is one of the nicest, most cared for people in, in the series and all that, realized none of that has a thing to do with the driving part. But think about this. He has had some, not many, but some very good years being an IndyCar driver. The uh, finishing positions in the championship tell us so. Uh, what was his best year? Was it sixth, I think? in uh fifth in 2013 right and what just looking here in his what he was seventh as a rookie um 11th the following year seventh eighth 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 
right? Got up to fifth in 2013, uh, then ninth and ninth, 16th, 12th, ninth, last one 16th, this time 20th worst of all. We've seen, I'm just trying to let me count here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times in his, what, 14-ish years, 15 years, we'll just say, you know, the vast majority of his IndyCar career, he's been a top 10 finisher in the championship. I realize that he hasn't been close to a championship, but if your general career average is about a ninth, 10th place in the season standings, that's not the worst thing in the world, right? I know it's unrealized potential. We've seen him win a couple races. We know he can be much better on a individual event basis uh, and also a, a season-long basis than he's been. But just throwing out here, if we're talking career average, kind of ninth, tenth in the championship, well, Alexander Rossi was ninth this year. Ron Hunter Ray was tenth. So... Am I saying he's a Rossi or Hunter Ray? I'm not. Just saying that the last two years have been unmistakably, unarguably bad for Marco. I just don't like the piling on. And I think that's a part of it. And it's, you know, I've certainly said more than once uh, on this show. I don't fully get it sometimes because there isn't always effort applied to the talent to get the most out of himself. But if we look back to 2018, he finished ninth in the championship. So, you know, three seasons ago, uh, he had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight top tens, two top fives, you know, uh, it's there. So the the closing part here, knowing that Marco said he's prepping for 2021, is this. These last two years have been brutal. This past season was the worst and the ugliest to date. At times his fault, at times the team's fault. Could be a strategy error or pit lane, pit stop, whatever. Uh could be a number of things but you don't go into the rest of your life this is the thing i just trying to share on the human level aspect if he'd always been a 15th place guy and he just finished 20th you might go all right dude <laughs> i mean you got what you got it's not really going to get any better there is no real reason to continue we've seen him be a top 10 guy in the championship the majority of his IndyCar career. Um, that's what makes me say emphatically that he needs to come back. He needs to perform better. He needs to do, I can't tell you what it is, because he's tried many things over 15-ish years, um, but he needs to come back and reconnect with whatever that thing is that had him in the top 10 and get inside the top 10, which he's cap more than capable of doing. I mean, there's essentially nobody in the 2018 field that's, you know, that he 
was able to get that ninth place out of, I realized we got a Pato and a Colton again. I know that there's a couple of young players, but the point being, there's really not much that has changed from 2018 from a vehicle standpoint or talent opposition standpoint that would make finishing ninth, 10th, or 11th in the championship beyond his means. And so I don't want the guy to retire on a 20th place because that that sticks with you. That That's a... That's a wound to carry with you for the rest of your life. And whether you love Marco, hate Marco, think he's a waste of talent, but whatever, uh, just as a human, I can't think of many who would wish that on somebody. Hey, <laughs> you struck out at every at bat for an entire season. Yeah, go ahead and retire on that and see how that feels for the rest of your life. Nah, uh, that's why I want to see him come back and hopefully reintroduce us to his former self. Uh, let's see. We really don't have many more questions here before we get to overtime. I'm going to try and rattle through these as quickly as I can. Uh, I've got about 22 minutes left before I got to turn off the good old uh, internet talking machine here. Uh, hey, it's our pal Jerry Robert Siddeth Marshall. Hope you are well soon and can kick whatever's ailing you. Thank you, man. Um, turns out French kissing reporter Bruce Martin. Not a good idea. So uh, I've learned my lesson here. Uh, let's see. He says, it seems like Alexander Rossi gets impacted more by the red mist than his personality would indicate. I know he was pushing to get a gap when he crashed. Was it just a matter of him miscalculating in the corner? Or did his emotions seem to get the better of him? I would have to err towards miscalculation. Uh, from a camera angle standpoint, I haven't seen anything that really was able to give me super Zapruder film capabilities to review things up close frame by frame. But Alexander has matured a ton since he came over back to America, learned to mellow a bit, and... I think I've mentioned many times, I enjoy the guy a lot. I really do. And uh, we didn't always make sense to one another and yada, 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 but I really enjoy him. When it comes to Alexander Rossi, the race car driver, even the guy out of the car, like the the professional athlete, I forget which Avengers movie it was. Maybe it was the first Avengers movie. Um, the whole deal where Bruce Banner... There, everyone was afraid he was going to turn into the Hulk, and they asked him what his secret was and how he was able to control it, and he said, well, the trick is I'm actually super angry all the time, right? Instead of it being an outburst that then turns him into the Hulk. It's kind of how I think of Rossi a lot of times, Jerry, and that isn't really meant as a negative, just the intensity of that guy. Like, there, if he was an actor he would have played Dexter in that Showtime show. Just that can give you the great quote, can give you the big smile, can do all the professional aspects of the job. But if things are not absolutely razor sharp on point, there's just this like burning intensity for things to be right. 
And that's not always the easiest thing for everyone to deal with, with someone who feels like, uh, let's just talk about more movies. The last uh, Godzilla movie, my wife and I love the last hour of that, by the way, where they realize that he's weak and they need to charge him up to beat the other big super monsters. So they set off a nuclear bomb and uh, Godzilla then absorbs all of it and kind of sort of goes thermonuclear late in the movie to kill all the bad monsters. Sorry if I just spoiled that movie for you. Um, there's just a little bit of that, like <laughs> kind of going Godzilla thermonuclear blast thing seems like it's something that Alexander keeps just beneath the surface when it's uh, come race time or trying to get things pointed in the right direction with uh, performance. So can't tell you if that's 100% accurate. It's not like I'm sitting in on the engineering meetings and what, just trying to share from what I've observed. Uh, In-person, pit lane, pits, whatever, just... And I think it's phenomenal. Like, I really do. Um, Folks that are have that personality angle they're not easy to be around when you are not performing well but you don't do this for it to be easy and if you're not performing well you really don't want that ah, i'll be fine now we're all good ah, hey, just tune up a little bit we'll be right there that doesn't get you into victory lane man uh, so there are a lot of different ways to do this and for those who think for example scott dixon is just like baking cookies for everyone. And he is just, you know, petting puppy dogs, and that's all he does. And then the team magically wins with him. Oh, no. Mr. Dixon knows how to use his tongue and his look, uh, shooting a glance. And, I mean, that's also a man who has no tolerance for lack of excellence and he's not a screamy, shouty guy, nor is Alexander. I think folks might be surprised how the two of them have very similar traits. Dixon's not like Mr. Super Rage in the car, and I'm not saying Alexander is as well, but uh, there's just that level of intensity that you go, wow, this is something that truly shapes the entire team, is very effective, and if they aren't performing, uh, you're going to get them back on track because if you don't, either... People leave because they wilt under the pressure or weak people in management say, well, we need to get rid of this driver person because they're just, they're too unpleasant. So uh, if more drivers were like Rossi, uh, more drivers would be perennial front runners in their respective series. Let's go to Nathan Wolfel. Hey, Nathan, take a sip of water here again, y'all. Resubmitting because I was late to the party last week. And please do that, y'all. If I fail to mention, I rarely remember to mention this, but if you've got a question or don't get to it, please, if you want it answered, send it back in. Might take more than once. And if you open the resubmission with something hostile, it's certainly going to get my attention. So thanks, Nathan, for sending this in again. So I'm wondering what you make of Kyle Kirkwood's current situation. Mentioned during the last IMSA broadcast that Kyle will be in Indy Lice next season. Well, I'm glad he'll be part of the series resurgence in 21. Do you think the success he's had in IMSA recently changes the big picture for him? 
He's obviously talented enough to be an IndyCar sooner than later, if all goes according to plan. But is there a chance that his 2020 season has him thinking more about sporty cars than he may have previously? Awesome question, Nathan. Asked that of the young Flo Ridian in an interview from, I don't know, a week or two ago. And he said, yeah, if the Indy Light season had gone forth as expected in 2020, took my advancement prize, went and did it, whatever. First of all, uh, I mean, if you're a betting person and someone is offering odds on Indy Lights Champions 2021, uh, if you don't put your money on Kirkwood, then I'd say you're pretty silly. Um, he said, look, had things just gone normally this year, I don't know if I would have ever thought about sports cars, would have ever really contemplated IMSA as anything more than a, oh, I got an invitation to go do this thing here on a free weekend. Yeah, cool. But strictly like just a weekend to go play. Nothing really connected Nathan to his professional career arc sensibilities. Since things didn't go according to plan this year, he said, absolutely. Wow. And I'm glad I've gotten a chance to do LMP3 and now GT Daytona with the uh, Aim Vassar Sullivan team and their Lexus GT3 car. And it's now something that he absolutely wants to incorporate into his career going forward. And I love that because if you got a chance to watch Petit Le Mans in Kyle's IMSA WeatherTech Championship debut, uh, star! <laughs> absolute star. Uh, so, so happy for him. GTD might be the lowest of the four classes, the slowest of the four classes, whatever. Uh, it is filled with hunter killers. The just nasty, nasty talent. And boy, that kid just showed, well, please put my name in there. Because I deserve to be up top with uh, everyone else. It's really cool to see. So, to your point, uh, I would say look for Kyle to hopefully be doing a handful of WeatherTech Championship races next year, uh, in and among his Indy Lights Championship uh, bid. And going forward, I mean, we see Ryan Hunter Ray, uh, sports car endurance races, right? Sebring, Daytona, Petit Le Mans, maybe uh, the six hours at the Glen just been a staple of his career for many years. Rossi's been involved. Uh, Dixon, we can run down the list. There's a lot of drivers. Pagano, <clears throat> where you know their season is going to be IndyCar full-time in three to four uh, endurance sports car races. And I love the fact that Kyle is already thinking in that direction and wanting to make that a staple for him. Uh, Simon Rafi, how are you? My... Awesome beer suggesting friend says, which driver surprised you this year, either good or bad hashtag me personally, Alex Polo did really well. And Simon Pagano was largely anonymous. You might've just taken my two choices there, Simon. So I'll try not to, uh, to parrot that then. Um, just add. It's a surprise that to me that Simon finished eighth in the championship. He rallied strong to get there. Uh, of his last four races, he had a, a pair of sixth and a tenth. 
it just felt like a terrible year for him. But eighth, it's still a surprise. Who did well that surprised me? I'd say Marcus Erickson had a better year than his results truly reflected. He finished one spot behind his teammate, Felix Rosenquist. Felix won a race. Marks didn't, but, and there weren't a ton of points. There's only like 15 points separating them. It, I know feel is not a real analytic here, but it feels like Felix had a much better year than Marcus, which is why it's such a surprise to see that Marcus did indeed finish directly behind him. And if we're talking shine, there's a lot of shine on Felix's name question about Marcus, right? No, I don't know. He didn't have a great year and as a rookie with um Aero SPM last year. So what impressed me with Marcus Simon and this is maybe what separated him from Felix in how they got to their 11th, their respective 11th and 12th in the standings. Felix was a big boomer bus guy, right? He got to 11th by the big points haul for that win. Uh, He had a fifth uh, to open at IMS, uh, the Harvest Grand Prix. He had a couple other top 10s, but they weren't like great. Other than that, sorry if I'm cursing more than usual on the show. I don't mean to. It's just I'm failing to think of smarter things. Rest of his year is a bit of a shit show. Like I hate to say it, but I just pulled up the results. So I'm going to ignore the quality results of the from the 14 races. If you look at those 14 races, there were five events where he had quality results. The other nine, he finished 20th, 15th, 18th, 14th, 15th, 12th, 22nd, 11th, and 18th. Now that 22nd, the second mid-Ohio race, certainly not his fault. That was Ferrucci's golden bowling ball. Had that not happened, knowing where he started, could he have had a really good day and moved further up the points? Of course. But just, you can kind of say that about almost every driver, right? Hey, if they hadn't driven off the track and hit something or someone hadn't wiped them out at whatever race, they'd be in a better spot. So it's a bit of a wash. Marcus didn't have front-running pace to win a race, so that's still a thing. We can't ignore that. But out of his 14 races, like he had some bad days, right? Indy 500, second, you know, uh, second car out of the race. Yeah, it wasn't great. Um, but his bad days were very, he actually, it's funny. Uh, by the numbers, Felix had five good days out of the 14 races. Marcus had five bad days out of the 14 races, uh, a 19th, 32nd at Indy 23rd, 15th and a 15th. The other nine, that's where my, Hey, I'm kind of impressed. And he was the sneaky good sixth, 10th, fourth, ninth, ninth, fifth, fifth, 10th, seventh, right? Those other nine races, all in the top 10 and a handful of those, you know, top fives. That's the part that has me going, ah, our man, M E eight, uh, 
Good old Marcus Erickson in the number eight Chip Ganassi Racing Honda. He had a better year than it might appear to have been. The big thing for him, obviously, is to convert some of those sixth and fifths and whatever next year into seconds and thirds, if not a win. Last little nugget here, Simon, you probably know this as well. His crew was returning to IndyCar after four years away. So, you know, his race engineer, Brad Goldberg, one of the most delightful human beings I know, hadn't engineered IndyCar in years. So he's, you know, granted, uh, not too far removed from all this in the Ganassi house. He was over in uh, the Ford GT land, but, you know, he and uh, Phil Binks and Jamie Coates, all awesome and amazing people with vast amount of experience. Just keep in mind, unlike Rosenquist's car and Dixon's car, Marcus's entry was a new assembly in terms of this group coming together with a new driver having to go race and learn and figure out how to do this as an IndyCar team. And that's not a challenge that Felix endured uh, on his way to 11th. The one who had a disappointing year, boy. I, I hate to mention his name because I don't want it to feel like I'm picking on him. He does make it easy to pick on him sometimes. Um, I felt like Santino Ferrucci finishing 13th was less than was capable. We do know for sure there were many instances in the first half of the year, maybe a little more than the first half of the year, where... Oh, pit lane was not, uh, that was a bad place to go. Go in in seventh, come out in 12th, go in in fifth, come out in 12th. Um, the team, that entry had a significant number of challenges this year. Decent amount of time. You could say were, was not Santino's fault. Obviously him crashing out on his own, uh, to close the year and finish 23rd certainly didn't help. Um, spoke about mid-Ohio. I mean, there were a number of races where you go, oh, boy. But if you look at his close to the season from gateway onwards, uh, he had a single top 10, and that was 10th place. But of that final stretch of seven races... He was 16th, 10th, 14th, 14th, 15th, 12th, and 23rd. Um, found some not great fortune. A lot of mistakes that the team brought to the party. He made some mistakes that were felt like, all right, I, I thought that might not really be part of the part of the story anymore, but okay. And altogether, he finished 13th. And that's not terrible, but it felt like a pretty okay 9th, 10th, 8th. It felt like it should have been higher up. So not all his fault, but there are certainly some events where uh, he was not particularly sharp, and that surprised me, um, knowing that he's a, just about the hardest charger in the series. 
he's pure electricity to watch him at starts and restarts and all that stuff that I've spoken about about before. So it did stand out to me as well that uh, what was the excuse for getting rid of Sebastian, even though he was under contract last year, that he missed the top 10, right, and didn't win a race, and therefore the team wasn't going to get a free Honda, and, could, and so therefore um, all the economics were thrown off and had to get rid of him, and there you go. I don't know what the contract was for this year with Santino in that car, but I do know that Sebastian finished 11th in it in 2019, and his replacement finished lower. So I don't know. Um, I don't know. But yeah, uh, just Simon felt like Santino should have been in a good er place. All right. Uh, John Wojnar, super pal here. Hey, bud, hope you're doing well. Just an easy, silly question for you. How many members of the Carpatic would it take to fight a bear? Similarly, how many bears could the entire Indy 500 field of 33 take on? My guess is somewhere around 2.3 bears. You're looking at numbers here, John. And I think that's a little bit of a failure because I don't think you're looking at this from the right way. It's strategy, right? Um, members of the IndyCar paddock, I mean, we could throw a lot in there, you know, especially a lot of the crew chiefs, a lot of the truck drivers. Hell, some of them, I bet, if we were to ask, have already fought bears. So there's that. But you talk about the entire field of 33, how many of them, it could be 2.3 bears. I think that number is very low, but it's not a numbers thing. It's a strategy game. It's of that field of 33, who do the bigger drivers gang up on and feed to the bears? And while they're busy eating the smaller among them, how many of those drivers pile on the distracted bear? And I don't want to say kill it because I don't want to kill bears, but, you know, take it down, put it in a, a arm bar or a triangle and, you know, choke him out till he taps. I think you could get that number up quite a bit. I think it could be five, six bears, but it just, again, it depends who you sacrifice. Since if we're just using survival, the fittest type rules, I mean, Takuma Sato, that guy, I know he's wiry and could probably fight like heck if he had to, but, you know, uh, he's going to be punching Graham Rahal's kneecaps or Hunter Ray's kneecaps or, or Renus's kneecaps. I think we might, I think a Takuma Sato might be the first sacrificed um, Colton Herta, you know, he's not short so much, but he's pretty thin. There's not a lot of meat on the bones, but you know, not every bear is super crazy hungry. Um, might be a little stringy, but I, I don't know if Colton's fighting back. If uh new garden, uh, Rossi and, uh, probably Erickson get a good hold of him. So you might have to throw him to a bear. So that's two. Um, Connor's not tall, but he'd probably clock just about everybody, so I think that's a non-starter. Uh, where else? Marco? Oh, Marco. Yeah, Marco might go before uh, might go before Takuma. Uh, he's just a lover. He's truly the, uh, not a fighter, but everyone likes him, so it'd be a tearful thing. Like, hey, you're probably going to lose like a foot, but we're going to try harder 
to choke out the distracted bear while they're trying to eat your foot faster than any of the other drivers because we'd love you and want to keep you around. But just letting you know, eh, you're going to lose a little something. Um, it's really good Zach Veach is no longer an IndyCar because, uh, uh, granted, he is really strong with all that he does with the rock climbing and such, but still not exactly physically imposing. Uh, from there... He's not small by any means, but I wonder if Jack Harvey gets thrown, right? You just assume he's going to smell good from all the baking that he does. You know he's going to have some powdered sugar or something under his nails or there's some there a confectionery scent that some smart drivers I might be the one shouting it to him by the way, just coaching him up a little bit. Sorry Jack, love you buddy. Um Jack might get tossed just cuz if, you know, there's going to uh, how's this one of the bears that maybe doesn't look like they're fully getting what's going on, they'd catch a, a whiff of Jack, and there you go. So what are we up to, four bears right now? I'm determined to get to five. We're, we're going to go to Pato. Right, we're, he's, again, he's not by no means big enough to fight off any driver, two or three driver gang that wants to take him down. Um, but he is, there's like, Tasmanian devil energy inside of Pato. So they might throw him to the bear. I don't know if he can fight. I assume. I think I've seen some like highly produced Instagram boxing video things of him or whatever. So we assume that he can maybe fight a little bit, but I just see him like going full, full, Tasmanian devil on that bear and punch it and slapping the crap out of its face and whatever. Um, while again, hopefully fending off the bear enough, you know, those big claws might do something, but, um, while some others can run over and choke out the bear. So I think we got to five, but it's a strategy thing, John. And I uh, just really need you to take these things more seriously. Uh, cannot fully express my disappointment in you. Kidding aside. I love me some John. Wojnar, also known as John Ranjow. Okay, uh, it took a little longer to get to overtime than I expected. I'm going to say thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. And for those who are happy and satisfied, that's the end of the show. For those who want to hang around for a couple more questions, well, I got a couple more. Actually, I got a lot more here. Um, and I'll rattle through as many as I can. Uh, first Jack Homan, Chad Donahue and Ryan Terpstra. You all just sent, uh, really kind wishes, hoping for me to get better and continued prayers for my queen. Really, truly thank you for that guys. Uh, 11 Tommy Salami. Of course that has to be someone from Reddit. Of course is New Hampshire motor speedway ever mentioned as a possible IndyCar venue. It's an SMI owned track in an area that isn't well served by the series. I've heard nothing about it. 11 Tommy Salami. Uh, if they have money to offer IndyCar to go there, I'm sure it would be considered, but boy, that sure doesn't sound like a COVID era thing. That's real. Uh, at Henrik F1. Uh, let's see. Personally, thanks for starting off there, Henrik. Always better than impersonally. I'd like to see new TV graphics and live timing. Uh, I assume you mean for 2021. Uh, tough to follow as it is today. Cheers. Um, okay. I mean, Hey, maybe that's the way you find it. I don't, but again, man, uh, I don't watch this through your eyes. So thanks for sending that through. 
Uh, Roa Richardson, possibly Noah Richardson, but maybe not. I was rewatching the 1995 Portland race when I heard one of the commentators mentioned that one of the big wigs from Renault was attending the event. Was there consideration of becoming part of the cart grid or was this just talent scouting? Huh? I have no idea. I don't recall it. I was there for that event, but don't recall uh, anything about Renault. I'm trying to remember when Renault stopped selling cars here though, in the good old United States of America. And part of me wonders if they hadn't already pulled out. So if that was the, case i yeah i'm struggling to think of an angle where renault would have met with cart about becoming a participant with cars engines or whatever else um as for talent scouting i don't know if i had more brain power i'd try to think it through of who signed with renault Uh, granted they were just an engine supplier but who might have been affiliated with them and in the years after but I don't know. For all I know, they just were looking for some good fishing and said, oh, hey, cart race. These are cool. Going to stop by. Uh, Mark Graham, is Tony George still active in Ed Carpenter Racing? I realize you haven't been to races this year, but have you heard whether TG attended any races? Years previous, I'd see him hanging out at the ECR Transporters and Pits. Be well. I have to assume so. I swear I've seen Tony in footage or photos or something. Uh, Active. Well, when you see Sonax on the side of Renus VK's car, well, Tony, as uh, my pal Jerome Demondal has got me up to speed with much earlier this year, I believe. Uh, Tony is the importer for Sonax and a couple other things uh, in the U.S. And so when you see Sonax on the side of the car, that's a Tony George thing. So he is most certainly active in the good old Ed Carpenter racing. Let's see. uh, Brian DeWert. Let's see. Dear Marshall, first to help you out, the last name is pronounced DeWert. All right. Well, hopefully I didn't murder it too badly there. Uh, I too mangle many names, so I want to give you an assist. Thank you, brother. Second, I sincerely hope you and your wife are doing okay. Uh, It says, as your tones are often in my passenger seat or office chair or the kitchen when I'm cooking, I feel like you're part of the family, so I hope for everyone to be healthy and well. Brian, that's like that's truly sweet and very surreal. <laughs> and that's not said that I'm not laughing in any kind of negative way. Some of you have heard me say this before. You know what I'm doing right now? I'm sitting in my office. It's what would be the second bedroom if we had a need for a second bedroom in our little townhome apartment thing here. I'm sitting in my office, in my chair, holding a bottle of water in one hand, staring at a microphone in front of me, and then looking up and reading your questions and talking words into the microphone. Like, it's really that simple and that basic and that non uh glamorous so just the thought that the stupid words that i say here are with you in passenger seats office office chairs or the kitchen and that i feel like family it's a beautiful thing to write and share brian i'm sincerely mean that it just these things never really register properly with me because in my mind 
I'm just sitting here talking into a stupid microphone in the guest bedroom. And in about 10 or 15 minutes, I'm going to go have some dinner and watch some TV with my lady. So thank you. It just, this stuff always stuns me because it, I, I know a duh idiot. You do a podcast. Therefore people are going to listen again. I get that. I just, I don't always get it, I guess. Longtime listener, Brian writes, but first time question submitter. Thank you, Brian. That's super awesome. Says, uh, you said something a few podcasts ago that piqued my curiosity. He talked about how Elio Castro Neves had to use a steering wheel. He, uh, wasn't used to for the Harvest Grand Prix with the Air McLaren SP team because he wasn't driving for Penske. So it never occurred to me the steering wheel wasn't a standard part. Why would drivers or teams have different steering wheels from the rest of the paddock? How are they different from one another? It says, I can understand the seat being a personal part as drivers are sized and shaped different, but I don't understand the thought behind a personal steering wheel. Uh, can you help a race fan out? Um, then he closes by saying, I love the Q and a shows as they cover so many topics I would never think of. Please keep doing them. And thank you, Brian, you got a deal, my friend. Um, I'm not a golfer. I've never been a golfer, but I would maybe equate it to golf clubs and how golfers often have custom grips. Um, trying to think about what else well i guess we can go back to uh tom brady and inflate gate with liking footballs at lower the bottom end of the allowable pressure range instead of fully maximum inflation and just trying to think about what other things uh be a baseball bat um in major league baseball whether grain length weight, uh, all kinds of things there. This is the same thing. It really is the same thing when it comes to a race car driver's steering wheel. Now, in many forms of racing, it's just get in and drive the car with the wheel that's in it, and there you go. But when we get to something like IndyCar, kind of an elite-level thing, you're going to get customization in just about everything. So another just quick example, if maybe some of the sports ones didn't fit, Brian, I don't know what size shoe you wear. Um, I'm a 13, so it's not like big, it's not small, but at least when I go shopping for shoes, 13s, you don't get size 13 in every type of shoe that you see. So the offerings tend to be a little bit limited. And therefore, since the options are restricted, it does come down to a, all right, I don't know if this is going to be exactly what I want because I don't have great options in front of me or variety in front of me, but let me just try and find the one that conforms the best to my foot so that I can hopefully walk freely and not think about it and not feel anything pushing into my foot maybe or pinching my toes that you go all right it's not stopping me from walking or running but it's a little bit of a restriction same thing here with the steering wheel right you got your two feet uh stomping away at pedals and whatnot and you got the steering wheel that's it i mean three forms of input to control this 240 mile an hour vehicle 
the thing that gets worked the most and requires the most precision is the steering wheel, the use of that steering wheel to allow drivers to have micro inputs. Uh, sometimes, as drivers have said, it might not even be turning the wheel so much as it is just adjusting the amount of pressure we're gripping with the gripping the wheel with, and just that little variance can slightly alter the tracking of the car, right? So that's why you have off-the-shelf ones, Cosworth, which makes the uh, electronics for the car, the data system, uh, and a lot of other things. They make a steering wheel. You can just straight up buy it, catalog part, plug it into the car, off you go. Um, You can then, on that Cosworth model, obviously adjust the grips so that there are some people that are experts in doing this for teams where it will be uh, molded grips on the steering wheel that so again your hand it's like a hand in glove with that steering wheel uh, some drivers don't like that so they don't um, there's button placement right there are I like I would prefer to have this here and that there and these are the things that I want to have easiest access to with my thumbs while I'm obviously going at a high rate of speed and maybe if there's some other buttons that I need to get to at a lesser frequency, maybe I'd only look at that or monkey with them on the straights when I'm maybe not so preoccupied. Uh, you can put that someplace where I need to kind of pull one hand halfway off the wheel to manipulate. Uh, but I want the ones that I really like and need uh, in a place where, uh, heck, I it's almost muscle memory where I just know where to put that thumb to do the thing. Um these are all the little differences uh, that make one driver happy with their wheel setup. that another driver would go, well, no, uh, that's crazy. Why would you put that button right there? That's the dumbest thing ever. Um, or I don't like this one. It has no grips and don't feel like I can clamp onto it properly. Or it does have grips and I don't. These are all the little things, Brian. Keeping in mind that the steering wheel is the number one item used by a driver to control the vehicle. Throttle and brake are certainly important as well, but this is it. (laughs) This is the one thing that really truly makes everything happen. So when you have an Elio who has a custom steering wheel, and so teams can make their own, Penske makes their own, um, it could be different dimension, different weight, could be you name it. Um, different material, different thickness. Did I mention that? It could be a, a variety of different things. This is something Elio's been driving for the most customization friendly team in the series. And I believe went to a team that does not have a super quadruple customized steering wheel and therefore just. This is why that was a thing, Brian. Uh, Knowing how important the steering wheel is and how much that just slipping on that pair of shoes and, man, it's just like they melt away and you don't even know they're there. That's the thing drivers are going for with their steering wheels. Um, Elio, 20 years with Penske. Uh, Moving to a team that had something different. Absolutely uh, a bigger shock to the system than uh, he any of us might have anticipated uh let's see 
Thomas Gross, <clears throat> who makes a call on allowing cars to continue or end their race. Clearly, Marco wanted to be restarted. They didn't let him. Scott McLaughlin looked to have minimal damage, but they hauled his car off. VK was allowed to continue. Um, I read an answer from race director Carl Novak from something Robin asked, and it was his response was uh, effectively, if a car's got a flat tire that's going to flap around and you know potentially shred and break bodywork and leave debris on the way back to the pits, we're not going to let them go. If a car can drive off, uh, basically without any major issue, I what they took the nose I think off of Renus's car maybe, um, but for the most part, the rest of it was okay. Well, we'll fire you up and let you keep going. So it's it's kind of a, is it a four-wheeled runner? Everything's inflated, pressures are up. Whether you got a front wing or rear wing, you know, we're not going to argue over that. But can you drive this back without prolonging the yellow and making more cleanup work uh, or potentially causing problems for yourself? You know, if it, again, it's a tire that's flapping around and, break something and spears you into the wall on the way to the pits i can get that thinking a little bit um uh, but i'd also say having spent a lot of my time covering and competing in sports cars boy uh if we're talking marco yeah i sure have seen a lot of cars driven back to pit lane uh miles <laughs> miles to get back to pit lane at Le Mans or wherever else in far worse shape. And yeah, you know, if you do it intelligently and you do it slowly, I think the risks are super minimal. If you're a hammerhead about it and you're trying to light up the rear tires with only one of them working and another one totally deflated and yeah, well, then, uh, yeah. So Yeah. Is this our last question or next to last question? Kevin Perez Frederico, you send in one about Aeroscreen and Pikes Peak. And I think uh, if you want me to get to that, send this one back in. It's a little bit long, and uh, I do. I've run overtime. I've run overtime on my overtime. So I got to get going here, y'all. Uh, last question goes to Al Wolstein. Hey, Al. It says, MP, why doesn't anyone in the IndyCar paddock give Pippo Durrani a test? He is lightning fast in sports cars. Well, I'd say a couple quick things. Pippo had a test with Sam Schmidt with Schmidt. I don't even remember what name of the 14 they've had. Schmidt, Hamilton, uh, Peterson, Brown. uh, I don't even know. Um, Had a test with them five years ago, seven years ago, whatever it was. And, I heard it went okay, but it wasn't a holy crap. That thing that you have seen in sports cars, it was on display in his IndyCar test. I have not heard any recountings of things like that. Now, were there reasons for it? I don't know. Uh, Was there mitigating circumstances? I don't know. I just know that in the one test that he did have, there was no real buzz that came from it. Uh, when he was driving for the Extreme Speed Motorsports team, sponsored by Patron, co-driver within that team, Patron CEO Ed Brown, I know that Ed was motivated to try and help Pippo to do a race or two or three or get him going with something with uh, Schmidt, and that fell through. 
And I think there's some connectedness, Al, to the general timing of uh, ESM starting to shut down uh, its team, which they've since gone away. So I think that kind of fizzled out there. Uh, tell you, man, it's amazing what reputation does, right? So you got to test, and it's not like the whole paddock. You know, Roger Penske wasn't like calling for up to the second updates. Um, but it's just amazing where a test that went on what wasn't like really conclusive of anything super positive. It's amazing how that can just sour people, just take you off the list. That mental list of like, oh, yeah, that's the guy. Um, I wonder if that's part of it. I think for any IMSA team owners that watch IMSA, any IndyCar team owners that watch IMSA races will should have come away many, many times that, boy, in a race, when someone needs to be chased down, Pippo Durrani is just, like, otherworldly. I think that is there for sure. That's a cool thing in a 10-hour race, and you're going to be in the car for two or three hours. Um I think there might be enough folks in IndyCar saying that's cool, but can you like be on pole all the time? Are you that good that you can knock off a Joseph Newgarden with regularity? Dixon, Rossi, Yadit, so on at Pow- Will Power, Hunter Ray, can you go humble Colton Herta? I don't know if there's anything I've seen in Pippo's amazing victories and drives and comeback performances or otherwise. I don't know if there's anything that's led me to believe put him in IndyCar and they're all going to just be bowing and uh, asking for forgiveness for thinking they could beat him. I'm not sure I've seen that. I would love to find out. That's not speaking ill of Pippo. I love the kid truly love the kid and would love to see someone give him some time in an indie car in a proper new proper test i seem to recall that when he tested for sam's team uh they weren't exactly a, a crazy force but again i could be wrong i don't know um i think there's something there al but and the kid came from an open wheel background, and I seem to recall when he did Star Mazda, as it was called, he did well, but he wasn't, you know, exactly setting the world on fire. He's clearly developed into a pretty special talent, but again, IndyCar is different enough. The things being asked are different enough to where, boy, uh, leading the team on setup from the opening practice, pointing everyone in the right direction, making all the right decisions, all the pressure being on you, 100% on you, no teammate in the car, just you, and having to get things right to where comeback drives. Again, we, we celebrate when a Santino or a Tony Kanaan or a whomever goes from the back to somewhere towards the front, but how often do we talk about and they won. No, it's more, whoa, they got up to fourth place. That's crazy. Yeah. If an IndyCar team owner is going to say, hey, come drive for me, they're going to have to think that that driver they're courting 
is capable of knocking off the Hurtas and Rossies and Powers and Awards and Dixons and New Gardens, uh, and can also be an upfront, all the time type person. The comeback drives, that's been the comeback drives are the closing drives. Have really, that's what has made Pippo's the mythology behind him. It's phenomenal. But I'd say if you're talking IndyCar team owners, what are they looking for? They're looking for a guy who can be a front runner the whole time. And that part, having watched Pippo for many years now, I don't know if that's been fully codified or cemented as part of his mythology. Whereas the drivers in IndyCar that I just mentioned, we know that they are hunter killers the whole time. And would love to see if Pippo could be that guy, but I'd also love to see his teammate. I'd love to see, could Ricky Taylor be that guy? Could John Edwards be that guy? Could Dane Cameron be that guy? Could Joey Hand be that guy? Uh, There are so many who I'd love to see get their shot in IndyCar. Um, And Pippo is just one of them. All right, y'all. Seriously. Seriously? Sure. Seriously. Thank you for everything you do for me, for my wife and I and us. Uh, Your listening matters. It helps. It is this show is a great kind of weekly (sighs) crawling on to the uh, therapist's uh, couch and just yapping away with y'all and hopefully having fun. So I hope some of this nonsense from today you all enjoyed. There's certainly a part two that I need to get to here as quickly as I can. Uh, Cooper Tires, Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA, a little bit of coffee in my New Day Bootios mug, a bottle of water cut with Gatorade Zero, um, a pretty awesome little bottle here of crazy nuclear-grade antibiotics. Um, I will speak to you here in a couple days. <laughs>